This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is always learning. In the first half, Nancy Wentworth shares her address, Our Eternal Education. Then in the second half, C. Terry Warner speaks on An Education of the Whole Soul. It is a humbling experience to be asked to speak at devotional, but I'm happy to be with you today to share my testimony of the gospel. I love being a teacher. I see myself as a teacher in every aspect of my life, in my work, with my family, in my church calling. When I teach, I like to ask questions, begin a discussion with my students. So standing in front of you as a speaker, as a lecturer, is uncomfortable for me. So as I speak to you today, I will ask you to think about what we are talking about. You may not be able to answer me the way you would in a classroom, but you should be able to form answers in your mind and in your heart. I hope this will help you feel the Spirit and use what I will talk about in your personal development. My first teaching assignment at BYU was a class entitled Exploration of Teaching for Students in a Secondary Mathematics Education major. On the first day of class, I had a discussion with my students about how they viewed teaching and learning through the lens of several metaphors. Today I would like to share with you some of our discussion. I want us to look at how each of these metaphors might help us understand the eternal education we are here on this earth to receive. Our eternal education begins with our understanding of where we have come from, why we are here, and where we are going after this life. In many ways, these are the same questions we address as educators. We want to know about our students, where they come from, what is their background, their home life, their cultural experiences, what we can draw on that will help us teach them in a language and with examples they will understand. We want to instill in them a vision of where they are going, to set goals for themselves, and to help them attain those goals. Today I would ask you to think about the purpose of your life here on earth. When I ask you, why are you here, you might say, to receive a body, to learn how to keep the commandments, or to become like Christ. Elder Dallin H. Oaks wrote, We are all children of a Heavenly Father who has sent us to earth with the invitation to prepare for eternal life. Every choice, every experience, every repentance and reformation prepares us for what is to come. President Thomas S. Monson has told us, Clearly one primary purpose of our existence upon the earth is to attain a body of flesh and bones. We have also been given the gift of agency. In a thousand ways we are privileged to choose for ourselves. Here we learn from the hard taskmaster of experience. We discern between good and evil. We differentiate as to the bitter and the sweet. We discover that there are consequences attached to our actions. Today I hope I can help you see how we use our gift of agency, how we learn from experience, how we prepare for our eternal life by becoming a disciple of Christ. 
The first day of class, I asked my students to think with me about many different ways to view education and how their views might impact how they think about teaching and learning. I had the students get into groups, and I assigned each group to think about a particular metaphor as a tool for thinking about education. One group discussed education as a race. Another group was assigned to think about education as a garden. And the last group was asked to use family as their metaphor. When I asked my students to think about a race as a metaphor for education, they almost always began the discussion with the notion of competition. Competition, is that a positive or a negative thing in education? Some students mentioned an athlete, that an athlete is willing to win at all costs. What about the idea of growth as an athlete? How does that happen? What is the role of the coach? And what is the role of the athlete? During the Summer Olympics this year, a colleague said to me, Why are we so glued to each event, even when we really don't know anything about that event or anyone competing in it? Perhaps the reason is that we love to see people truly excel at something. Some competitors were so sad to have a silver medal. They wanted the gold. It was an all-or-nothing proposition for them. For some of them, success has been easy. They have continually been told how good they were and that they were the best. Other athletes were thrilled that they had their personal best time at the Games. They were improving, getting better with each race and each competition. In the classroom, there are some students who feel that they can never be the best student in the class, the winner. So why should they continue to work? They might think, if I can't be number one, then there is no point in trying at all. As teachers, we try to encourage growth in our students, not just winning. Is the student or athlete trying to improve his own learning and understanding, or is he only trying to beat someone else? We want them to feel that their personal improvement is a victory and that working hard is the way to improve. In our eternal education, we should remember that we are not in competition with others. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland spoke about how the success of others does not diminish our efforts. He stated, Brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our lives when someone else gets an unexpected blessing or receives some special recognition. May I plead with us not to be hurt and certainly not to feel envious when good fortune comes to another person. We are not diminished when someone else is added upon. We are not in a race against each other to see who is the wealthiest or the most talented or the most beautiful or even the most blessed. The race we are really in is the race against sin, and surely envy is one of the most universal of those. From a spiritual perspective, are we in a race for eternal life? Elder Neil L. Anderson addressed this issue in his conference talk in April 2012. Jesus' call, Come Follow Me, is not only for those prepared to compete in a spiritual Olympics. In fact, discipleship is not a competition at all, but an invitation to all. 
Our journey of discipleship is not a dash around the track, nor is it fully comparable to a lengthy marathon. In truth, it is a lifelong migration toward a more celestial world. Wherever you are, wherever you now find yourself on the road of discipleship, you are on the right road, the road towards eternal life. Together we can lift and strengthen one another in the great and important days ahead. One more area of importance for me in the race metaphor is the role of the coach and the role of the athlete. The athletes at the Olympics were grateful to the coaches who had recognized their ability, who had helped them know which race would suit their natural talents, who had helped them improve, who had advised them about a strength that needed to be built, and who had encouraged them as they repeated and repeated the skill until their performance their time improved. I would ask my education students if they have had a coach, a really good coach. If so, how did that coach help them improve? My students talked about how a coach helped them see what they needed to do to improve. The coach saw that to get off the blocks faster, a runner needed to strengthen a particular muscle. To do that, the coach gave the athlete the assignment to spend time in the weight room to strengthen that muscle. And my students talked about how they were the ones that needed to do the work. It is one thing to have a great coach who can see just what the student needs to do. But if the student does not follow the guidance of the coach, then the muscle does not get stronger. And so it is in the classroom. The teacher can help the student know what he needs to do to improve his skills in reading or mathematics, but if the student does not do the work, then there is not much improvement. How does this apply to our eternal education? The scriptures are replete with stories of coaches who had advised and guided and taught others how they might better their performance as they strive to become a disciple of Christ. In Alma 39 through 42, we learn about the way in which Alma coached his son Corianton about the plan of salvation, about his current abilities and practice, and what Corianton needed to do to succeed in this life. Alma pointed out to Corianton the concerns he had in his performance. Now, my son, I would that ye should repent and forsake your sins. And go no more after the lusts of your eyes, but cross yourself in all these things. For except ye do this, ye can no wise inherit the kingdom of God. O remember, and take it upon you, and cross yourself in these things. In verse 10, Alma continued to help Corianton see what he needed to do to improve next. And I command you to take it upon you to counsel with your elder brothers in your undertakings. For behold, thou art in thy youth, and ye stand in need to be nourished by your brothers, and give heed to their counsel. In verses 11 and 12, Alma reminds Corianton that he has sinned in the past and that he needs to turn away from this activity. In verse 13, Alma is very direct with Corianton when he tells him to turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength, that ye led away the hearts of no more to do wickedly, but rather return unto them and acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done.
Alma seems to understand the role of the coach here. He provides clear instruction to Corianton about what he needs to do, and he encourages him to do it. Alma knows that he cannot change Corianton, but the Corianton can change if he follows the direction of his father. Corianton must exercise his free agency and do the work to change his behavior. I wish I could hear from all of you now. Are you thinking about a person that you have coached or someone who has coached you? Are you thinking about a time when you did the hard work that a coach told you to do so that you can improve your skills? Has this idea helped you in your eternal education? Have you been instructed about what you need to do to become a disciple of Christ? We can learn from the story of Alma and Corianton whether we are thinking of ourselves as the coach or the athlete. As a coach, we need to be kind and loving and supportive of the person we are trying to help. As the athlete, we are responsible for doing the work that will help us become an eternal disciple of Christ. We need to listen to those coaches in our lives who can help us develop spiritually. These people may be our bishops, home teachers or visiting teachers, family members, friends. We need to listen to their counsel and then exercise our free agency by doing the work that they see will help us grow spiritually. How do we grow spiritually? What does that mean to us? Perhaps we can learn about that from the garden metaphor. My students enjoyed discussing their views of education through the lens of the garden. They described the role of the teacher to be like that of the gardener, who creates an environment in which children can learn, where each student can grow into his or her full potential, whether that is an apple or a pumpkin, a scientist, an artist. It is the responsibility of the gardener to create an environment where the seed can grow, where the students can thrive and develop. I would ask my students to think about what the role of the student is in this garden metaphor. We can learn a great deal about the role of the student when we read the parable of the sower in Matthew 13:3-8. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed some seeds, fell up by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprang up, sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. When thinking about our eternal education to become a disciple of Christ, how have you prepared yourself to receive the gospel and grow in your potential during this lifetime? Are you ignoring the gospel and not accepting the seeds, letting the fowls devour them? Are you the stony soil where the gospel message falls, but where the roots of the gospel do not grow deep? Are you good ground where the seeds of the gospel can take root and bring forth fruit? Elder M. Russell Ballard said in his October 2012 conference address, 
How do we take the seed of faith that has been nurtured in our minds and planted deep in the fertile soil of our souls? How do we make the mighty change of heart that Alma says is essential for our eternal happiness and peace? The questions posed by Elder Ballard are important ones for eternal education. What do we do to plant the seed of faith in our heart so that we can become a disciple of Christ? This is a key question in education. How do students truly learn? Is a lecture in a classroom the best way to help students gain knowledge? Can students do a few homework problems and feel confident that they know the material? Just listening to others who are experts in a field is not enough to truly know something, to have planted it in our hearts. As educators, we want our students to experience learning in multiple ways. We want students to read, to practice skills, to discuss with others how they understand what they are learning. We want them to have personal experiences with knowledge. Then understanding becomes embedded in them, and that makes their learning personal and real to them. If we are to become a disciple of Christ, we need to have personal experiences with what that means. What personal experiences have you had that help you become like Christ? Have you ever been asked to do something for someone and you really didn't want to do it? If you did it anyway, did you feel good about it? Did you get that feeling that service is a good thing to do? One of the blessings of service is the feeling of becoming like Christ. Initially, you might serve others because your mind knows that you should. You have heard friends or family members talk about serving others. You might have done service as a group with others. But then you experience service that you decided was worth doing. The seed was planted in your heart, and it began to grow. It was planted deep in your heart and would help you in your eternal education to become a disciple of Christ. Returning to Alma 41 and the story of Alma's instructions to Corianton, we learn the true nature of our heart. What is planted there and growing in our heart is that nature that will be restored to us in the resurrection. And it is requisite with the justice of God that men should be judged according to their works. And if their works were good in this life and the desires of their hearts were good, that they should also at the last days be restored unto that which is good. And if their works are evil, they should be restored unto them for evil. Therefore, all things should be restored to their proper order, everything in its natural frame, mortality raised to immortality, corruption to incorruption, raised to endless happiness to inherit the kingdom of God or to endless misery to inherit the kingdom of the devil the one on the one hand and the other on the other. So our eternal education, that of becoming a disciple of Christ, requires that we plant the seed of the gospel in our hearts and live it. The garden metaphor helps us understand that we can plant the seed of the gospel in our hearts through our personal experiences. The final metaphor that we discussed in my education class is that of a family. How does a family help us think about education in a classroom and think about our eternal education? Elder Paul E. Kolaker stated, 
The Father's plan designated the pattern of the family to help us learn, apply, and understand the power of love. Because of the heaven-designed pattern of the family, we more fully understand how our Heavenly Father truly loves each of us equally and fully. Children start out life so dependent on their parents for everything—food, warmth, safety. Parents teach their children, and sometimes that means correcting them. A truly loving parent does not demean their children when they make a mistake. Instead, they help the child see what they need to do to make things right or to improve, to grow. At school, children learn many things beyond skills and knowledge. They learn to share, to work hard, to experience new things, to ask questions, to explore new ideas. They learn to care about people other than themselves. Children in school may not always want to do their homework or practice a skill, but a teacher helps them see how this work can help them grow. Like a loving parent, good teachers point out the small successes of their students. So the students want to keep trying, keep working, keep growing. In a family where children are being taught the gospel, they learn to pray, to read scriptures, to go to church. They have experiences where they can feel the Spirit, and those experiences can help them recognize the feeling, that feeling in the future. They practice being a disciple of Christ so that they can become a disciple of Christ. This is where they experience the gospel. When I think of a family, I think of loving parents who sacrifice for their children. Parents love their children for many reasons, partly because they serve them every day. They sacrifice for them. They give their lives for them by giving their time and their resources to ensure the growth and success of their children. Parents want the best for their children. I think if you were to ask parents, they would say that their acts of love and service are not a sacrifice. Rather, giving their lives for their children is a joy. There are many ways that we learn to serve others and sacrifice for them. The Church provides opportunities for us to be of service. Last summer, when there was a great deal of wind damage in Davis County, bishops dismissed Church after sacrament meetings so members of the Church could go cut up fallen trees, remove destroyed fences, truly serve others. Brigham Young sent Church members out from their meetings to help others who were struggling on the plains. During the 2012 General Women's Conference, President Henry B. Eyring spoke of the kind, loving Relief Society sisters who helped a family with food, cleaning, and shopping when a tiny baby was born 15 weeks early. Are we learning to serve others from these examples? Do we see the needs of others when Church leaders do not ask us to give service? How does the family metaphor help us answer these questions? The family metaphor is critical to the way we live the gospel. We know that we are all eternal brothers and sisters in an eternal family. We know that we share a loving Heavenly Father and a common Savior who is our elder brother. I would hope that as we become more like Christ, 
We want the best for others in the same way we want the best for our earthly families. I hope that we can see love and service and serve everyone around us because we see them as members of our eternal family. If we love others and serve others as we do members of our earthly family, then it is not a sacrifice to love and serve them any more than it is a sacrifice to be a parent. In Alma 43, we read about how Corianton had learned the lesson of the family metaphor. When Corianton came to understand all that his father Alma was teaching him, he spent the rest of his life teaching others the gospel. And now it came to pass that the sons of Alma did go forth among the people to declare the word unto them. And Alma also himself could not rest, and he also went forth. Now we shall say no more concerning their preaching, except that they preached the word and the truth according to the spirit of prophecy and revelation, and they preached after the holy order of God by which they were called. Corianton, along with his brothers and his father Alma, lived the rest of their lives sharing the gospel with others. They showed their love of their eternal family through their service. Did Corianton do it as a sacrifice or because it gave him joy? I think it gave him joy because he understood that his eternal education, that of becoming a disciple of Christ, was not a race to be won but a lifelong journey. He began to coach others in how they should live the gospel. He had planted the seed of the gospel in his heart so it could grow and rise with him in the resurrection. He found joy in the loving service he was giving to his eternal brothers and sisters by sharing the gospel with them. It is my prayer today that we will think about what it means to gain an eternal education, an education where you become a disciple of Christ. I pray that you will remember the race metaphor and know that you are not in a race with others for eternal life, but that you will listen to those who are like a coach who teaches you to develop as a disciple of Christ. I pray that you can place the seed of the gospel in your heart and that your experiences in living the gospel will help that seed to grow. I pray that you will prepare for eternal life by loving and serving all of mankind as part of your eternal family, not as a sacrifice, but with joy in the service. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf stated what it means to be a disciple of Christ in the priesthood session of the October 2012 conference. May I close with his remarks. Let us deepen our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us take upon ourselves his name and commit each single day to walk anew in the path of discipleship. Let our works make our faith perfect through discipleship. We may be perfected one step at a time by serving our family, our fellow men, and God. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is always learning. We've just heard from Nancy Wentworth. After the break, we'll return with C. Terry Warner for An Education of the Whole Soul.
This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is always learning. Next is C. Terry Warner, BYU professor of philosophy at the time of this address, titled An Education of the Whole Soul. Across the eastern face of the new Joseph S. Smith Building, which was dedicated three years ago, runs a 200-foot curved glass curtain. This curtain encloses a grand gallery on the second and third floors. And in this gallery, a permanent multimedia exhibition opened its doors this fall. The exhibit is entitled The Education of the Soul, Our Zion Tradition of Learning and Faith. For dozens of us who worked on the exhibit, mainly BYU students and recent graduates, it has been like a secret passageway to a remarkable treasure. I think of it as an inheritance that we did not know was ours. We discovered this treasure in the stories of the people who founded this school. Under the guidance of heaven, they created here a kind of education that is different from anything the world has to offer. To tell you more about this inheritance, I will share a few of their stories with you. At some point after the Saints had begun settling in the Mountain West, Brigham Young foresaw the need for schools that would cover the primary grades up through what we now call high school to teach both the academic subjects and the doctrines of our religion. In the spring of 1876, he called Carl G. Mazur to preside at the first of these schools the Brigham Young Academy in Provo, which at that time was already in its first term under interim president Warren Duesenberry. During his interview with Brother Mazur, President Young gave him the now famous charge to teach, quote, not even the alphabet or the multiplication table without the Spirit of God, unquote. Mazur could scarcely have been better prepared for this job. He had obtained a world-class education in his native Saxony, then after his conversion served three missions and taught very successfully for about a decade and a half in the Salt Lake schools where he earned a reputation for excellence. Mazur took over the academy at the beginning of its second term in late April. Before he left Salt Lake for Provo, the Territorial School Association gave him a magnificent desk in recognition of his service a desk that will figure prominently in our story. At the end of the first week of school, Mazur received word on a Friday afternoon that in three days President Young would be in Provo. The prophet wanted to see Mazur's plans for a program that would fulfill the charge to teach every subject by the Spirit of God. So under pressure from the prophet's pending arrival, Mazur sat at that desk through that Friday night trying to develop an educational plan that would incorporate President Young's momentous conception of the role of the Spirit in true education. Nothing came to him. All through Saturday he worked and into the night, and then again on Sunday until nightfall. Finally he dropped, disheartened, to his knees. Oh, Father, he pleaded, show me the way. Help me make the plans for this great work. I cannot do it of myself. Immediately, the confusion of the preceding days was lifted, and within an hour or two, 
Mazur had written out the plan for the new school. It had come to him as an answer to prayer. Mazur's plan ingeniously worked out many ways in which the students would grow morally and spiritually in the very same educational process that developed them intellectually. One of the factors that would make this process work was Mazur's determination to have the teachers do nothing that the students were able to do. Students participated in the academic planning meetings, conducted discussion sessions following the theology classes, assisted administratively, and looked out for one another in a program very much like our home and visiting teaching today. In this school, each would serve the others and all would progress together. The educational program became the model for a great system of Church schools, many of which were called academies. Over the span of more than 40 years, this system produced tens of thousands of Latter-day Saint leaders and faithful members. By and large, those who developed the seminary and institute programs in the early days all over the world came from these schools. So you see how great is the worldwide educational forest that grew from two apparently tiny seeds. First, a prophet's instruction for the operation of a school to give place to the Spirit of God in everything. And second, a revelation in answer to the prayer of a very good and able servant, which he wrote down while sitting at the desk he had been given for faithful service to the children of Zion. Whatever the details of the plan Mazur recorded that day, they included the Spirit of God. As James E. Talmadge wrote while still a student, quote, All our discipline, all our studies are conducted according to the Spirit of God. Unquote. Student recollections of the period strongly suggest that this Spirit was most noticeably manifest in the love and unity that prevailed in the school and that this love emanated especially from Brother Mazur. Many stories describe how he lifted and nurtured people. Quote, he knew how to touch a boy's heart like no one else I have ever known, said Bryant S. Hinckley. I have seen men come from the farm and ranch, stay there six months, and go home with an entirely new look in their eye. Unquote. Mazur had not always possessed this gift of love, at least not in such abundance. Apparently, it came to him when President Young called him to preside at the Academy. George S. Reynolds, the First Presidency's secretary, was present, and he said that he would never forget the spirit that filled the office that day. Prior to his calling, Mazur had a wide reputation in the Salt Lake schools for severity. Among the students, he was a mean teacher. For example, he once boxed young Reed Smoot on the ear for coming to school unprepared. But it was the same Reed Smoot who later and gratefully attended Brigham Young Academy as one of Mazur's very first students, and who as an older man said that Mazur's whole nature changed at the time of his calling. Without this transformation, it is doubtful that Mazur could have instilled a nurturing spirit in his students, which he surely did. I'll tell you about a few of them. Joseph B. Keeler, one of Mazur's students in the first class, managed the students' finances and physical facilities while teaching eight classes per term. 
He was widely known for his splendid example, his gift for listening, and for finding ways to help students in need. One day he overheard President George H. Brimhall expel a very uncooperative repeat offender. As the student was leaving, Keeler drew him into his office in order, he said, to take care of the details. He asked about the young man's plans, which included going into business. Then, explaining that withdrawing from school would take a few days, Keeler offered the young man work in the office, quote, to finish out the week. The week became a month and more. The young man stayed in school. He graduated with honors and became an upright businessman. Years later, he attributed his, quote, success in life to that great man. As a faculty member, Alice Louise Reynolds obtained most of her advanced education, studying with some of the world's finest literature teachers during leaves from her teaching position. She brought back and shared with her students who flocked to her classes whatever she had discovered that enriched her life. One colleague described her as a person of uncommon intellectual standards who had been refined and ennobled by both religion and art. She had an unusual capacity to awaken both the faith and the intellect of her students, I think, because she had blended them so well in her own life. She also was able to make her students believe in themselves, and I think this was because she believed in them so much herself. Brigham T. Higgs taught carpentry classes and supervised the school's maintenance. He was the first to hire students for this purpose. Though he arrived at the academy too late to work under Brother Mazur, he quickly came to exemplify the school's nurturing spirit. He would meet with the student workers daily before dawn and instruct them not only in their duties but also about the value of work and virtuous living. Don't be a scrub, he would say, meaning someone who does less than his best. Be the man you would be proud to have your son become. He would visit their boarding houses to make sure their living conditions were adequate and bring food to the ones who were struggling. President Brimhall once said that no one had been more valuable to the university than B.T. Higgs, and a number of Higgs students praised him as their greatest inspiration. Partly because of the influence of these and other educational pioneers, more Latter-day Saints who went to major universities for their advanced schooling stayed in the Church and returned to build up Zion. Many reared families and became leaders. Many taught in the Church's quorums, auxiliaries, and schools. And their students, who were even more numerous, did the same. Each succeeding generation was better prepared academically and spiritually than its predecessors. Thus, a branching, expanding educational genealogy runs through our history and the history of other Church education schools and programs as well. Very sadly, we have records of relatively few individuals kindling in others the flame of learning. But I am sure that this lighting of others' lamps happened thousands of times in our history and that the stories are all written in the Book of Life. The stories I've just told clearly illustrate two of the characteristics of education in the Kingdom of God that make it different from anything to be found in the world. 
First, as the title of the exhibit indicates, it is an education of the whole soul. We saw in the story of Brother Mazur how limiting it can be, even in a person of extraordinary talent, when his development is deficient in some essential respect. Second, if we are living as the gospel requires when we are learning, we are unwilling to leave others behind, an essential part of our growth if we're working in Zion, comes in helping others grow. Those we help help yet others, our own posterity among them. We are drawn together. We become united as Zion people. Fundamentally, education in the kingdom of God is different because it operates on the Zion principle of love. This Zion tradition of learning did not begin with Brigham Young and Carl G. Mazur. In this dispensation, it goes back to Joseph Smith. His was truly an education of the whole soul, divinely orchestrated. Heavenly teachers were his instructors and models. His scriptural translations gave him great knowledge of God's dealings with Israel and developed his ability to obtain revelation, for he worked with languages he did not know. In the translations, excuse me, in the tribulations that he had to pass through, he grew in virtue, leadership, compassion, and wisdom. God developed not just Joseph's mind, but his whole being. Joseph also exemplified the second characteristic of a Zion education in that his constant labor was to help the saints come to enjoy the very same holy experiences and gain the same knowledge that he had obtained. He did not reserve any privileges for himself alone. The instructions for how the first school in Zion, the school of the prophets, was to operate were given by the Lord, but in every respect they are expressive of Joseph's heart. For they outlined the way participants were to build each other up and thus advance together. The school met in Kirtland in an 11 by 14 room above Newell Whitney's store and included the most seasoned Church leaders with some women attending. They were instructed to study subjects that would develop all their gifts and talents, from the doctrines of the Kingdom to the affairs of the world, so that they, like Joseph, could be prepared to help build up a Zion people and they were told how to conduct themselves in the school, which brought a dimension to their learning and growth that otherwise would have been absent. For example, everyone was to come repentant, humble, reverent, invigorated after a good night's sleep, clean and wearing fresh clothing, fasting, free of pride, envy, and fault-finding, and bonded together by love. The learning itself was to be collaborative, with each person given, it, given, given a chance to teach the others and then listen carefully while the others taught, so that, quote, all may be edified of all and that every man might have an equal privilege, unquote. The pattern of their preparation and their study together, which is rooted in the order of the priesthood, would enable them to grow in many directions at once. <clears throat> you can see that in these instructions, the Lord was building up His beloved servants by asking them 
to build up one another. Following this divine example, Joseph, Brigham Young, and their successors sought diligently to bring the kind of education that began in the School of the Prophets to as many Latter-day Saints as possible. I don't have time to speak of the details, but I'll just say here that throughout the next century, as the Church grew, these leaders established priesthood quorums, priesthood auxiliaries, community schools, stake academies, colleges, a university, and eventually the seminaries and institutes. They kept at the work even in desperately impoverished circumstances when many others thought education should be postponed. For they understood very clearly an urgency that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland expressed when he presided at this school in 1981. This Church, he said, is always just one generation away from extinction. All we would have to do to destroy this work is to stop teaching the children for one generation." It was not primarily for themselves but for the children of the future, for Zion, that these visionary leaders and their faithful associates worked so hard. There is almost nothing we can name that has absorbed as much of the Latter-day Prophet's energy, attention, and care as the education of this people. You may have thought that you are here to take a certain series of classes, obtain a degree, and then leave learning behind. I do not think that is the way the Lord designed. He wants the flourishing of your whole soul for the glories He has in mind for you, including an eternal family with children who will shine as jewels in your crown. And that is why He intends to bless you if you will exert yourself with a soul-stretching education all your life. It is also why He has provided this school, together with all the rest of Church education. I caution you against making the mistake of supposing these resources to be merely human institutions. When in 1885 the Brigham Young Academy's financial challenges were particularly trying, a faculty member who was also Brigham Young's daughter sought President John Tater's help. He told her that her father, who had passed on some years before, had come to him in the silence of the night and told him, quote, that the school being taught by Brother Mazur was accepted in the heavens and was part of the great plan of life and salvation and that Christ himself was directing it and had a care over this school. Brigham Young founded the Academy because he was alarmed that educational institutions were rapidly forgetting their religious heritage and rearing children to embrace an increasingly secular and increasingly atheistic culture. Only a different kind of school could avoid this fate, a school in which all teaching and learning would be done by the Spirit of God. Mazur once put it this way, the new academy simply had to have, quote, the spirit of the latter-day work running through it like a golden thread, end quote. Mazur's successors shared that conviction. Our fourth president, Franklin S. Harris, said at his inauguration in 1921, quote, there has grown out of this institution a certain fire that must be kept burning. The first task of the future 
is to preserve this spirit that comes to us from the past. This is our task also. We should not expect this task to be easier than what the Founders had to do. As in Brigham Young's time, we live surrounded by a secular culture that seems more and more threatening. I suppose that most of us unwittingly bring elements of this culture into our community of learning. We import tinges of its contempt for simple religious faith, its frivolous and often angry mental life, its demand for rights without responsibility, its tolerance for wasted time, its sickening vulgarity, its pride in gaining advantage over other people, and much more. When we help or allow such attitudes to encroach upon this community, we subtly but surely lend ourselves to the devil's project of making this school over in the image of the world, something which President Spencer W. Kimball said, quote, must not happen. We can overcome such dangers, not by becoming a cultural police force, but by actively building up a far better way of life. When men and women are, quote, anxiously engaged in a good cause and doing many things of their own free will to bring to pass much righteousness, unquote, they make it very hard for the attitudes and habits of a carnal and violent world to get a foothold here. By building others up and thus building Zion, we overcome evil with good. I think of Florence Jefferson Madsen, who had gained great prominence as a contralto soloist in Boston and New York. When she came to BYU in 1920, she, with her husband Franklin, established a great musical tradition by hiring a fine faculty and mounting splendid productions. Beyond that, she organized and directed over 2,000 groups of singing mothers throughout the Church. We simply cannot count the students who carried their enhanced musical talents and their enthusiasm wherever they went. It was said that no LDS woman did more to bring beauty and harmony into the world. I think of Sidney B. Sperry, who retired the year I came here on the faculty. Beginning in the late 1920s, he helped to pioneer the blending of scholarship with the teaching of scripture. It was a time when the faith of young Latter-day Saints was being shaken by scholars' naturalistic explanations of spiritual events in the Bible. Sperry used these same scholars' findings, though not their irreligious speculations, to deepen religious understanding. By this means, over the course of nearly 40 years, he brought gospel scholarship into the lives of Church education teachers and students and a very wide audience of Church members. Among those who learned from him were many who later shaped religious instruction in the Church system. I ask myself, what if people such as these had not built up this school and the rest of the Church educational system? What would we be learning here? What would be our attitudes our aspirations, our relationships, would they be different at all from the secular culture around us? Would we know anything about God and His plan of happiness? What would we be like 
if the teachers of our teachers going far back had not been men and women such as Carl Mazur, Alice Louise Reynolds, and Sidney Sperry. Remember, the way to destroy this work and to cheat the children of the future of everything we hold dear is to stop teaching them the gospel, our precious way of life, for just one generation. Today I have spoken of the importance to us of our educational ancestors. So many of this of us have given this topic so little thought that I presumed it would be helpful to tell you that for us who have worked on the exhibit and studied their lives, these people have become an unexpected treasure. We soon realized as we went about our work that we were not just recording the stories of bygone men and women. We were coming to know these people as if in person. Even across the years, we could feel their influence spiritually. Their examples seemed to us to gently pull us aside and show us how we could be doing better. They became part of our work. And in the process, we, like they, sought the Lord's Spirit so that our efforts, like theirs, might enlighten, edify, and encourage others. Thus, we joined our hands and hearts with theirs, and we became part of their work. This has seemed to me a very real inheritance in Zion. We were given a place among eternal friends who had done eternal work for souls they had yet to meet. I have learned from these noble people that laboring in Zion for Zion, in whatever capacity, gives us the privilege of using all our talents, gifts, and learning to build up a Zion way of living together a holy culture, an alternative to a perishing world. In this Zion culture, the major formative influences upon our posterity will come from good and faithful people. I have been associated closely with three major universities, and I can tell you that for me, the life of learning does not get any sweeter than this. And the inheritance I've described is also yours to claim, if you desire. On two high and facing walls, one on the north and the other on the south of the exhibit gallery, are two remarkable 18-foot-high murals painted by one of our students. The south one depicts the Kirtland Temple, barely seen if you're looking at it right now, but in the large mural, obvious. It was the first temple of this dispensation, and like all the temples, was to be a house of learning. It is labeled the Temple a Holy School. The mural on the north depicts the Brigham Young University in President George H. Brimhall's time, with the Academy building in the foreground and the newly constructed Mazer building further in the background on Temple Hill. Its title is The School, a Temple of Learning. I have learned from the lives of our founders that this school does indeed deserve the name, a temple of learning. 
I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ that the work of this university and the whole Church education system is His work. For He commanded, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. In His name, Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Always Learning, with thoughts from Nancy Wentworth and C. Terry Warner. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.